0: registered interview, and uh, that is kind of my role this week, so paints the kind of, you know, cult leader, as we like to call her uh, in our social circle, and then I'm just the ops guy, um, so I will, you know, I, I've already been asked two questions this morning that I haven't been able to answer, like where's there a chemist, and where can I get some glue,
1: <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's usually after Pete's
0: talk to somebody's rain for buddy, but anyway. Um, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll do my best to time with all those, but then that is also my role here, is to uh, help the functional wheels of industry turn and point you in the directions of X, Y, and Z. Um, so just so you know, that's what I'm here for. I am your person if you need to ask either on Facebook or you know or or, or in person or whatever. I can usually know somebody who can do a thing or where you can get a thing, apart from me um, uh, and yeah, I, I suppose Pete's talked about me, so I'm gonna talk about Pete. Um just to get this out of the way, for those of you who are new here, I haven't read any other books because I don't care. Okay. <laughs> and it's not that I don't believe I'm already, you know, I I kind of, I just don't do the God thing anymore. I may have used the rap for Jesus, but it's just, it's not part of my life. So don't ask me what I think about Pete's work, because the answer is I've no idea. (laughs) Um, But I do love this. I love hanging out with all of you. Right, just a little bit about today. Oh, yeah, and just in terms of what we've tried to do this year, if you've been before, again, I know a lot of you haven't been before, so I'm sorry if I keep saying that. What we've tried to do this year is kind of make it a little bit more spread out. So every year we get feedback saying, uh, you know, there's just my head's melted. I just need a little bit more time. I wanted to talk it out. I wanted to lie in my bed and turn the lights off and cry. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, so we tried it. We've, over time, we've, we've sort of tried to give a little bit more room to breathe. Let's call it that. Um, and this year we've done that even further, which is why we're starting a little bit earlier, even on the Monday, um, and sort of, sort of given quite a lot of sort of socially stuff, and we've brought the the premium drinks into the official program because we want people to feel comfortable with each other and be mates, you know. Um, so hopefully that that'll that um, work out. Today there's a brief talk from Pete. Um, not that brief, but there you go. Um, I, I'm from Pete, and then there'll be an hour for lunch. Most days it's, it's an hour and a half for lunch, but today it's just an hour. And then those of you, you you've all told me that you're going to sign up for one tour or another. If you're going to the street art tour, if you can meet, actually don't meet here, <laughs> meet, um, meet outside the, the Duke of York, which is where we, we were drinking last night. So if you, if you meet there um, at like two o'clock, um, then we'll we'll take it from there if you are going on a bus journey with pete um there's a bar called the national which is on high street which is like you come out this door you'll cross a small street you'll turn right across a small small street and then you get to a big street it's like high street right and the national is just on the corner there pete is leading that so maybe even if you could meet here at five to two in case people feel like they can't find that and then you can sort of gather people but go either straight there or, or it's pretty easy to find there'll be a bus on High Street at 2 o'clock to take you on your little jaunt of the river. Um, And then this evening, oh yeah, and then after that, sorry, so one of the things, I'm sorry, I'm just going to go through this because sometimes the descriptions aren't really like very obvious. And I want to tell you what we're trying to do. Sorry it's boring. So at 4 o'clock then, back in the green room in here, like we sort of created a, a particular kind of meeting kind of point, okay, um, and I I've put some close-up magicians who are amazing, um, and so it's just, again, a chance to get to know each other a little bit, and we've arranged it so that the screwdriver tour and also then the bus tour will be finished, so that people can excellent, thank you um, so uh, so people will um, uh, you'll be back in time to do that. It's It's all kind of optional, I mean, you're here, this is not school. You can like literally skip every single piece that he does. And that's OK, because you're a paying customer. You can take or leave whatever you like. Okay, There's nothing like, is this, is this compulsory? Nothing's compulsory, right? You can do whatever you like. You don't even have to come at all. There's some people who haven't even come at all. Anyway, uh, so it's all optional, right? Um, and then, um, this evening, there's two things. One is in Oye, it should be on the map, okay? So it's not Oye, is literally just around the corner. And then the dark horse is across the road from the bar that we were last night, if you were there. So it's pretty straightforward. And again, it's, mostly, it's kind of entertainment, but it's hopefully entertainment that's... thoughtful Entertainment. That's what we're trying to do. Okay. A um, couple of other real quick things. There is a kind of, sort of, shop-ish this year. We have a couple of things to sell, basically. So we have a, a, a badges, a, a pack, which includes a, a weight bag from previous years, which I have left over, which is quite nice. Not as nice as this year. but it it's quite nice. And we're going to give away a tract and a, and a, and a, and a badge. So, so there, we can sell them if you want them. No pressure. Um, and we'll hopefully, when we have a couple of authors throughout the week, we'll have their books to sell as well. Uh, and the final thing I want to say is just about what this is, OK? So it's really, really important that we're clear what we're at, OK? We are not at a youth retreat. We are not at a therapy session. Pete and me are not qualified to look after you, OK? and. You know, in some ways, what, what I've learned about Pete's work, even though I pay no attention to it, is that it does bring things out in people that may be difficult, okay? And some people might struggle with some of the things and maybe wrestling with things and maybe here because they're wrestling with things that, that are difficult, yeah? like I'm not a social worker, right? And Pete is not a social worker, right? That doesn't mean to say that we don't care, but we just we're not here to fix those things, but what can help fix those things is community. Okay? And this is our community. For these next four days, you, you guys are my brothers and sisters, right? That's who we are. That's what community is. That's what this is a pop up community. That's what a festival should be. It's like, we're here, we're community for a while, and then we're going to go back to our ordinary lives, right? So it's a safe space, but look out for one another, okay? Because that's what you do in community, yes? Can we all sign up to that? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's optional as well. You can say, fuck y'all, I don't care. But like if at least a few of you would go like, yeah, I'd like to hold hands and then come by that. OK, anyway, yes. Does that? So is that, are we kind of OK with that? Yeah, is that OK, so we look out for one another and sort of be supportive and all that kind of stuff, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So I, I'm going to, you know, Pete gave me a wonderful introduction there. Um, so I'm trying to think of. Really dirty stories that I have. I've known, I know I know better than any of you. That's but anyway, we'll not we'll not get into that. Um, get me drunk, and uh, so uh, for the next yeah uh, yeah. I'm gonna we're gonna start the the talky stuff now. So Pete's gonna do an hour and then an hour for lunch and then back to the talks. Operationally, are we clear? Okay. I'm gonna be sitting like right there. because I.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you hold them in here, by the way,
2: it's, it's of no use. It's just like
0: it's- It's a, my so fake like box a, like a, <laughs> a, it's, it's like my wrapper
2: kind of yeah. All right, so um, I want to pick up, actually, something Adam's talking about in relation to why this is called weird But most of my talking bits, I'm actually going to try to uh, get some of the questions and concerns and thoughts that you're bringing to this. Because, to be honest with you, you get a lot of me online, you know. Unfortunately for you, there's a lot of me talking somewhere on YouTube, and so it's not like in the old days where every time I talked, it was sometimes it was the first time people had heard the Shema story. You know, it was the first time you know people had heard this parable, and it was interesting. Most of you are here because you followed this work for a while, and it's not like oh now you paid the three hundred or whatever quid, so you get the secret. That I haven't told everybody online, right? There is no secret. The secret is there is no secret. Um, but what you do get is uh, we get an opportunity to have a more intimate conversation. And so at various points during the next four days when I get up, um, I'll, I'll start by talking about something and then get some questions from people and take it from there. And then on the last day, we're going to do a breakout session uh, where we can, um, for anybody who's really into the philosophy and the theology stuff, you can go to that breakout, and that's where we'll kind of talk about dead philosophers. So um, that's what we'll do. Also, hopefully, you've all got your packs. No expense. Uh, Spare. There's not what I say no expense at all was put into them. Uh, we have a, if you're wondering about the banana, Adam swears that it is a great kind of here. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, know, like, I, I know, yeah, people kind of wonder whether it's symbolic significance or anything But no, it is that I work
1: here. There but you
2: can just, like, not <laughs> And that just tells you something's going on? It's just like a, it's the standard tourist, Belfast Guide we'll have a map, and probably where you can Okay. <laughs> okay. So, what I want to start with then is this idea of, you know, Adam mentioned it in this very caring way of we don't care about you, uh, that you may be here because of some sort of, you know, something that's happened in your life where your worldview, your ideology, your religious background is somehow shaken. That's actually generally why people connect with power theology initially, is that the worldview that won't sustain you uh, has somehow begun to weaken, um, and that's kind of the first step into kind of paratheology. But that isn't what paratheology is about at all. In most worldviews, most religious systems have a place for doubt, complexity, and ambiguity. Most religious systems have a place when things go wrong. They give an explanation for why that is. They can they can create space. For you to mourn to a greater or lesser extent. The difference, I think, with paro-theology to interest in the most confessional theology, to liberal and progressive theology, also to New Age mysticism, Gnosticism, all of those positions. The difference is very depressing. As soon as I say this, it signed depressing. So I'm going to spend four days trying to convince you that it's not depressing, but it does. Most of these confessional systems want to say that beneath the traumas that have happened to you, the contingent things that have that have rocked your world, there is an underlying <laughs> harmony and wholeness and a way to kind of get back to a place of completeness from that brokenness. And in parapsychology, kind of the idea is no, there's not. <laughs> there's there is actually. No way back from the brokenness, because actually the brokenness is something that is inherent to being human It's inherent to existence itself and that weirdly the way to find The way to find a way, a way to find joy and a way to find depth and meaning in life is actually weirdly to go deeper into that traumatic space to that difficult place and what happens in our lives is we may have difficult things that happen to us 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 times but each time we are able to cover over those things. Each time that we confront doubts, guilt, a sense of meaninglessness, the loss of someone we love, the, the, the sense of our own imminence, Each time we confront these experiences, we can find a way to kind of like cover it over in sacred and secular ways, whether it's through prayer, or going to the movies, or going to the pub. We've got all various ways to cover over these traumas that happen to us. But at a certain point, one of these traumas just maybe shakes us more than the others, and we can't get back. To, to, to some system that seems to give us all of the answers, and we have to do something else. And um, I'll just very briefly talk about this journey more deeply into the trauma, uh, and then we'll unpack it over the next few days. So the first step is something happens to you contingently. Something occurs that gets you to rethink everything, that disturbs your life that comes in and shakes everything up. And that's an apocalyptic event. Apocalypse is the incoming of something that completely you know, destroys your world, uh, and also offers the possibility of a new world. An apocalyptic event is something you can't put into your diary. It's not something that you can predict. It's something that comes from the world. It might, it might be the birth of a child. It might be the loss of a job of this talking. Um, it might be um, whatever it is, something comes in that you couldn't predict and it throws everything off course. So we attempt to cover over that, but the next step is potentially going to hold on a second. This lack and this trauma that I'm experiencing is also experienced by others. It's something that's shared this actually unifies me to the people who are around me. My loss is particular to me. No one else has experienced the loss that I have experienced. But there's something about loss that's part of being human. That's you know, the, the, the Buddhist parable that I've told often about a woman whose child dies. So that is a singular event. Her child has died. And she is rocked by this. And the story is she wraps the child's body in linen. And she wraps that body to her room. And she goes and searches someone who can resuscitate her child. She goes the faith leaders and witch doctors, and no one can help. But the story goes as some elders say that high up in the mountains, away from everyone, there is a, there is a holy man so close to the divine, he can even raise the dead. And so she goes in search of this holy man. She eventually finds this little wooden shack high up in the mountain, away from everyone. And she knocks on the door, and an old man comes to the door. She bursts into tears, and she says, I don't know if you're the one they talk about in the village. I don't know if you can help me, but my child has died, and I must have her back. And the old man takes pity on her and says, yes, I am the one they talk about, and I can help you. I need to make a potion. And the potion requires ingredients. And one of those ingredients is a handful of mustard seeds taken from a home that has not been burned by the black sun of suffering that has scorched your life. So go back, get some mustard seeds, and bring them to me. And then she goes back into the village. And as you probably know, she goes from house to house. But she cannot find one home that has been untouched by death and suffering and lack. And yet, as she hears the story of other people's troubles and sufferings, she gradually comes to terms with her own until she is able to bury her child in the earth. So what what that story does is it it shifts from your individual suffering to this is something that joins me and connects me with other people. And that experience is kind of a, a experience of mourning and an experience of healing. The next level is where it gets more interesting is um, the next step of our is to say that it's not just what's called Baltic, right, which is basically your contingent suffering that happens to you that I don't share. It's not just existential, which is the second level, which is, I get different ways we've all experienced lack and trauma in some sort of way. The next level could be called ontological, which is there's actually something about lack that is built into the very nature of reality itself. So when you experience this trauma, it's not just yours, it's not just what unifies us all as human beings, this is something that really unifies us with the nature of being itself. Uh, if you've seen the film Annihilation, uh, it's a Netflix movie. It's just come out and get it on Netflix. It's interesting because it's about a, a comet that uh, hits the planet Earth, and what happens is this basically got some sort of alien organism, and um, this organism creates what's called a shimmer, which is an ever increasing border that's threatening to. Uh, engulf the entire plant. and uh, What's happening with, with in the space before the shimmer is basically our DNA is all getting mixed up with the DNA of plants and other animals, so it's fundamentally reconfiguring the Earth. Uh, four, uh, four scientists enter into the shimmer to find out what's going on, to try to get to the source, uh, and try to stop it. Now what's interesting is the annihilation <coughs> doesn't refer particularly to the alien life form. The annihilation is, refers to something in human beings that's self-destructive. So the leader of the team uh, says to a biologist, the leader of the team to a psychologist, and uh, uh, the biologist is asking her, why are you leading this team? Um, or, or no, I think um, she said, why would my husband, because her husband went into the shimmer, returns one year later, and he's all messed up. He's the first person to return from, from this, this alien space. And, and, and um, she's asking the psychologist, why would my husband have volunteered to go into the shimmer when nobody returns? And the psychologist said, well, you know, you think you had a perfect marriage, you think everything was going well, but there's something in us. That's self destructive. So, in one sense, he went in there and it's self destructive act. And then um, she said, well, You should know this because this is not just in our psychology, this is hardwired into our cellular structure, this destructive element. And so, the, these, these four scientists go into the shimmer. But interestingly, all of them uh, are the annihilation, all of them want to die for various reasons. Right? They're all basically messed up, and they're all going in there for self-destructive reasons. And then you can see the last act of the movie, I won't finish, I won't spoil it, but as a self-destructive act. Was that spoiling it? I don't know. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it's hard to interpret exactly what's on. I interpret it as the ultimate But The idea in the movie is that there is this fundamental trauma and self-destructive side to what it is to be human. And interestingly, there are various names for this. In psychoanalysis, it's we can be called death drive, or the unconscious in some ways. Um, In biology, it's called evolution. You know, evolution is this kind of like antagonism that in life itself that that creates all this destruction and death and beauty and complexity. And in physics, you have superpositioning, wave uh, particle duality. These are kind of that's, a, that's a, the uh, physics way of talking about this antagonism, the structure of being. So, weirdly, here again, it's another step in, into the trauma. Now it's not just your trauma. Now it's not just the trauma that we share together. Now it's something about the very nature of reality itself. And then I say the last step is, um, is metaphysics, which is the craziest claim of all, which is that there is, at the very ground of being, Uh, antagonism. And so in your experience of doubt, complexity and ambiguity, uh, in your experience of trauma and loss, you're actually connecting in some way with the very source of everything. Um, Now I say most other systems like confessional theology at every point wants to say no 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 right you know you can go go a little bit into the the brokenness and the trauma but but underneath there is something that sustains us that's whole and complete and all that. one of the issues for me right is because at first when I say that all of you will hopefully be going power the all these sounds horrible right? I just I kind of liked it because a little bit of doubt and ongoing and it's okay to to mourn. I like that. But this sounds crazy. (laughs) Um, But it's the same in psychoanalysis. People go to psychoanalysis because they want to be fixed. Sadly, in psychoanalysis, what you discover is that really, very gradually, you go, no, there's there's no fixing. There's just a a tarrying with the trauma, finding a way of positivizing it and of um, healing through, through kind of bringing it with you in some sort of way. That actually, all of the problems arise from trying to get rid of, trying to pretend it isn't there. That's where all, all the issues arise. I, I think a good example of this to try to start convincing you school, You don't have to be convinced. You're, you're going to be wrong if you want. That's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, there's still, you know, something of value, hopefully, in the paratheological approach. But I do want to. The reason why it's theological. Is because it's saying that there's something at the core of Christianity that is about embracing a fracture within ourselves, which of course, and I'll probably get to this uh, by Wednesday or Thursday, you see in this claim, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is in a sense symbolic, you can say, as a rupture within the structure of reality itself. But um, think about it, there's two ways to create a social bond, broadly speaking. Uh, one which is the common way which is we create a social bonds through what we share through our excess, through what we believe through our say our race or our gender or our mission statement uh, or our geographical location we create social bonds through, through what we have in common right? and that's the most common type of social bond uh, but there's a fundamental problem with that, from this perspective, the psychoanalytic perspective, which is that, it, that then it has to repress the lack. It has to erase something. Every time we try to relate in terms of what we share in common, and we share lots in common, many of us, we share something in common. But when we fully try to create a community through a shared mission statement, a shared set of beliefs, a shared religious ideology, something gets erased, and that is the doubt, the trauma, the, the, uh, the lack, the antagonism. These get covered over. Technically that's what ideology is. Ideology is a system of thought that covers over the ambiguities and the contradictions of existence, rendering them palatable or understandable, trying to rid us of the uh, of these, these fractures in our being. Um, Oh yeah, so we unify in what we all share. So the the lack gets one of three things. It either gets repressed, right? Which means that the doubt, the lacks, the the traumas, this antagonism gets pushed down and we ignore it. But then it comes back. So when you repress, Freud says there's always a return of the repressed, which means that the most common form of the return of the repressed is scapegoating. We are all unified, we have the answer, we have the truth. So, but there's some other community that's just getting in the way. Some other group. some thing out there that's just preventing everything from being part. We already have the answer, we already have it all, but there's some external force that's just threatening us. That. It's the cultural Marxists, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's uh, the immigrants, it's this or it's that, there's some group that are threatening the, 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 the excess, the thing that we have in all. So the obvious example is fascism. The fascist community is the community that says, you know, we have an organic unity and harmony and connection with the environment. We are organically connected to the earth, blood and soil. Um, but there is this group, the figure of the Jew, the Jewish community, who threaten that, who disturb that unity and that harmony. They are the enemy we have to destroy. Them. But actually, what happens is the Jewish community in the fantasy of the fascist is actually what allows fascism to continue. It allows the fascist community to paper over the inherent social antagonisms within the group, the inherent problems that exist. You put it onto somebody else. So if you actually got rid of the other community, you wouldn't have success. You'd have failure. This is the interesting thing about this structure is, this community you're trying to get rid of is actually what holds you together. And if you got rid of it, you wouldn't find some sort of joy and completeness. You would find that actually this, the problems that you think are on them are actually inherent to you. Like I'm not saying this is, is the case, but I think sometimes you can see this in very a very legitimate part. So you have a, a political leader who is the enemy. who who then contains all of the problems. They are the problem. What happens is you start to purify yourself. So this is the community that's pure and good and right. That's where all the evil and the bad is. If only we got rid of that, everything would be wonderful. What that figure is doing is they're allowing us to distance ourselves from inherent antagonisms within the, the political community itself. So, if you got rid of the figure, this is great, it's great to have a figure who's an idiot because then you know, they are really good at projecting onto it. But if you get rid of them, what happens is actually you may discover that all of the social antagonisms that they represent are actually inherently within the society itself. This is um, an example of like a hypochondriac, right? A hypochondriac who thinks they've got cancer, right? They hate the cancer. They say, I got cancer, and I want to get rid of it. But of course they don't. They love their cancer, right? The hypochondriac is always fantasizing about cancer, always thinking about it, always trying to get rid of it. Why? Well, because the hypochondriac, let's say, has an anxiety. They have anxiety. So what happens is they then create something that can contain that anxiety, right? So it's the reason why I feel anxious is because I've got cancer. Right? And then they can fantasize about trying to get rid of the anxiety, which is to get rid of the cancer. But the cancer is what binds the anxiety. So you have you know somebody's sleeping at night and you hear you, you're always thinking there's a murderer in the cupboard, right? And you think that's bad. No, that's not that's saving you from something even worse. You're binding your anxiety to your murderer in the cupboard. Because and so, whenever people say, Oh, well, there's no murderer in the cupboard, and they keep on thinking, Oh, you're dumb. The person, of course, knows there's no murderer in the cupboard, right?
1: <laughs> but they, not at night.
2: At night, there's definitely someone in the cupboard. I have to check three times, right? But that's protecting from something even worse. Is It's a way of binding the anxiety to something concrete. And then, what we don't understand if we're telling the person there's nobody in the cupboard, right? We we'll don't understand is that, that actually the person, it sounds weird, unconsciously wants there to be someone, not wants there to be someone in the cupboard, wants something to bind the anxiety. That's the reason why I can't sleep. There's someone in the cupboard, right? That's the problem. So weirdly, you need your enemy. You need the very thing that you hate, because it binds your anxiety. So with the hypochondriac, you go like, I have cancer, I have cancer, I have cancer. Um, They need the cancer to kind of like distance themselves from their own internal Antagonisms and anxieties, just like a child says, "There's a monster under the bed." The monster isn't under the bed. The monster is inside them. But the first thing you do, you distance yourself from the monster. You put the anxiety onto something external uh, until you're able to very <coughs> gradually understand that the anxiety is within you. So, a hypochondriac then, if you find out they have got cancer, what happens there? So you're a hypochondriac, you think you've got cancer, and then you find out you have got cancer. Well, the problem is you're psychically invested in having the cancer. So although you can go, brilliant, really, I'm not paranoid I actually have the cancer. If you are paranoid, you just happen to have. It's like they say, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean the FBI aren't trying to get you. Right? You may be paranoid that the FBI are trying to get you, and then you find out that the FBI are trying to get you. Doesn't mean you're not paranoid. Or if you, you're really jealous because you think your partner's cheating on you, and then you find out your partner is cheating on you, doesn't mean you're not paranoid, it just means you're right. Okay? Because you may, you may structurally require your partner to cheat on you, and just the fact that they are cheating on you is just an empirical proof. But you're still paranoid as hell. right? Um, so it gets a bit complicated. Uh, uh, and by the way, a lot of the reason why people have jealousies is people think, oh, you have jealousy because you love someone. But, but no. Generally, unconsciously, the only way you can love someone is to be jealous of them. For for some people, the structure is, I I keep my desire for you alive by always thinking there is a threat about to take you away. So unconsciously, the person is only able to maintain their desire by fantasizing that someone is about to take their partner away. So weirdly, if you get rid of the jealousy, you're not left with love and desire. You're left with nothing. Mm making love ideas like that the, the obstacle is what generates, continues to generate the desire. That's an aside, doesn't matter. <laughs> um, the, the, the hypochondriac finds out they have cancer, but they're weirdly invested in having it. Contrast that with someone who's not a hypochondriac, but he finds out they have cancer. They are not legitimately invested in the disease, right? So they can more actively fight against it, because they don't want it. They don't even want it unconsciously. There's no kind of sense of this disease holds me together. I bind my anxiety to it, so in some weird sense, I need it. You go, no, know, I have this and I want to get rid of it. And so you can actually more effectively fight it. In the same way, if you have a political figure who is holding you together, who is actually able to help you fantasize your community is pure and good, um, uh, you know, what's called the beautiful soul, people call it a beautiful soul that I am the beautiful soul and there's all the evil, then we are unconsciously invested in keeping the enemy. Of course, we want to keep the enemy, because the enemy does something that binds our anxiety, stops us from looking at the lack that is within our community. So if we got rid of the enemy, all we'd be left with is looking at how crap we all are. And look at you, so you're all crap, I can tell. Guys, why else would you be here? And, um, it's like the Kulaks in Soviet Russia. The Kulaks were the problem. They were the peasants who kind of owned the means of production. They employed. They had money, and so they were persecuted. But while the Soviet system had the kulaks, you can blame everything on them. Everything's great. be wonderful. They are this contingent problem that, that's causing issues. The problem is the Soviet Russia. They're a tough bunch, right? So they're they get rid of the kulaks. You know, the persecution is too successful. So what happens? But what happens is they had to start expanding the definition of what a kulak was because they required a kulak. So now they were, a kulak was someone who you know, had only a very modest uh, means of production or had a slightly larger field than some other people. And eventually a kulak was just somebody who thought like a kulak. Or someone is a kulak, if they would think like a kulak if they had the chance. In other words, you just always had to have an enemy. Or you think about it like in school, those people who always have to have someone to slide off. They always have to have another who is the problem. Because that stops them from looking at their lack. so that's that's repression and return to repressed. There's two others I don't think we've got time to look at them. What time is it? Yes. 12 1230. 1230. Okay. Very quickly I'll mention the other ones, okay. Then the second way we often avoid lack when we're in a community is through disavowal. And this works in a slightly different way. Uh, Simone Weil once asked the question, what does a miser lose when he loses his fortune? (laughs) And what she was referring to is Aesop's Fable. Famously, this miser goes to the bottom of his garden every week and counts this treasure that's buried under a tree. He never spends it. Like a true miser, he never spends it. He just counts the money and goes back to his house. But one day, uh, a criminal sees this, and so whenever the miser goes back to his house, the criminal goes steals all the money.
1: So the next Sunday, the miser <coughs> goes to the bottom of his
2: garden, digs up the treasure, and there's nothing there. So that, just a and he screams out because he's so upset, and he screams so loudly that some of the neighbors hear, and they come over to him and say, "What's wrong?" And I said, "Well, I have this money that I buried here, and every week I count it." And I came back this Sunday and it's on the saloon. And in Aesop's vehicle, one of the neighbors says, you never spent it? And uh, he says, I uh, said, no. And then the, the neighbor picks up some rocks, throws them into the hole, and says, well, count the room. It will do you just as much good. Right? And it's a really interesting thought experiment that Simone Bay asks us, so well, what did he lose? Because he's upset. So he definitely lost something. Whenever there's anxiety, there's always Cause right, so he's upset, he's crying, but in one way he didn't really lose anything. Yes, he lost the money, but he never used it. So he can't be crying about that. So what, what is upsetting him so much? And Lacan initiates the song, and Lacan basically says, what the miser loses is the ph- phantasmic object that prevents the miser from looking at the that is within his life. So, Traditionally a miser has a rubbish life. They've got terrible friendships, they live in squalor, they, they don't wash, they do you know all of that. So the typical bit of the typical miser. But as long as they've got their wealth, they seem to not emotionally experience the trauma of their life. Right? They seem to be able to weirdly ignore it. They know it's there, they can talk about it, they can see it, but strangely they're detached from it. Right? So think about it like a relationship. I had a friend who um, had a, his life was falling apart, but he was deeply in love with this girl, and it was kind of like this relationship where they they kind of they were together a bit and a part of it, but really while she existed as a possibility, never really as a relationship. While she existed as a possibility, he didn't seem to emotionally connect with the fact that his life was miserable. But then, when he lost her, when she became completely inaccessible, he suddenly was confronted emotionally with his life, and then he changed his job, uh, he changed where he lived, and all that kind of stuff, right? But the idea was, it was it was while he had this, what's called a fetish object, an object that is not magical when you treat it as if it is, this object, um, this woman, as long as that she was in his life psychically as a possibility, he didn't see the lack. And then when he lost her. Like, this happens a lot. I know some people who lost their son and they kept the room exactly as it was before he died. And they mourned and all of that, but you know, the husband, the guy, he was a very quiet man, very right? dignified a very quiet man. And really it was only when they took the room apart years later that in some respects he broke down that weirdly, the room being kept as it was, was a way, weirdly, to emotionally detach from the trauma that was being experienced. And sadly, the problem is that if there's a reason for doing that, so you should never take away that fetish object before it should be taken away. But but there's a point when, in order to, to confront the lack, that, that object has to be taken away. The third, very quickly, can be called um, for closure, And this, this, this is the weirdest one of all. It's where this lack that I'm talking about, the trauma that is part of being human, um, and I talked about that elsewhere in seminars, you can find it. the trauma that is being human, it doesn't even enter the person psychologically. So it's not even something that's repressed, it's not something that's distanced from emotionally, it doesn't even enter the person. Um, they, they, they don't suffer any dykes, Complexity or ambiguity—they—they they, they seem to uh, kind of be impervious to this lack. It hasn't found a way to, to express itself. And so what happens then, um, if I understand theory well enough, is—and this is psychosis, by the way—psychosis is where you don't experience lack. You—you you become the lack. What's called so—it's called the loss returns in the real, which means. You, your ego dissipates. You don't know where you start, you stop sometimes. You have out-of-body experiences, your ego fragments.
1: So in other words, you don't have a way of
2: expressing the lack, but the, you become the lack. <laughs> you, you um, in a psychological experience, you, you, you're overtaken by voices. You don't know where the, the boundary of your body is. So these are all ways in which trauma and lack and the antagonism of life Express themselves in social bonds, but there's a different way of creating a social link that's connected with the, the theory and power of power theology. Um, and before I move on, let's take a, t- 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 Tinder as an example of what I'm talking about. You know, in Tinder or any dating app, uh, there's basically one reason why people are not dating apps, uh, and the one reason is you experience a lack of some kind. You're lonely. You don't feel complete, right? That's, that's the reason why everyone's doing Tinder or Match.com or whatever, because there is, in a sense, of going, like, I feel alone, I feel isolated, I want to have some connection with someone. But if you look at dating apps, this is the one thing that nobody mentions. Every dating app, everybody is expressing themselves as if they are happy, whole, and complete. All of the pictures make them look like they're having a blast. They men are topless, taming lions, you know, women are playing beach ball while drinking sex on the beach or whatever, I don't know. Uh, but you know, and, and when you read the descriptions, everybody says it's what they enjoy, it's what they like, it's how much fun they have, and so clearly the one thing that brings you to a daily map, which is your lack, is the one thing that is completely covered over. I mean, not completely, but if you do talk about your lack, you're never going to
1: connect
2: with anybody. I mean, if you have the picture of you being depressed, crying, <laughs> touching security blanket with, like, I think life is despair, and then you die, you're not going to die. I've tried it. You're not getting Yes, it doesn't work. Um, so we weirdly give up our excess in, 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 on, on dating apps. We also do it in parties. Parties are, by definition, uh, um, antisocial spaces. It's funny that so the, the most antisocial space is a party because at a party everybody is putting their best foot forward. You're showing what I can do and who I am and what I've accomplished. In Los Angeles, these parties are—it's all about who's who, who's in the room, who's the cooler person to talk to. You know, and it's always moving around. Everybody, in a sense, is trying to express their positivity, and who they are, and and how great they are. Um, That is not. You can't connect with people. I mean, you're never going to get beyond adoration or jealousy. Uh, You're never going to get beyond those kinds of emotions. Because here's the interesting thing. In order to experience a genuine friendship or genuine connection, our social bond has to connect with luck. Love, Lacan says, love is this. Love is giving what you do not have to someone who does not want it. Love is giving what you do not have to someone who doesn't want it. Okay, what does it mean? One way of describing that is he says, well, what you do, instead of giving who you are and all the greatness that you are, there's a moment where you go, I'm lacking. Why? Because I desire. Desire is lack. If I desire something, I feel I'm lacking, and I desire you. So there's something in me that's lacking, and I'm gonna show that. I'm gonna give you my lack, which is what you're doing to give desire is to give your lack, right? Just someone who doesn't want it. Because in a sense, I want you to complete me, I want you to be full of I want you to kind of like somehow make me cool, I want your lack. That sounds awful. I don't want your trauma, I don't want your suffering, I don't want your doubt and you unknowing, I don't want any of that. I want I want to be around you, it's all amazing, and you're gonna make my life fantastic, and you know you're Rock Rockstar, really, I want to like, sniff cocaine all the day, it's going to be amazing, I don't want your lack. But love is this weird moment that very rarely happens, like a miracle when it does, but where two people can share the lack, <laughs> and the other person doesn't really want it, but he but accepts it, and actually does enjoy it. So when two people share their lack. But that's the social, that's what's missing in parties. Al de Bouton talks about this nice little video on YouTube where, where he, it's really so counterintuitive, where he says, you know, if you're uh, social people at parties, if you're the type of person who goes to bed at nine o'clock rather than go out to that crazy party, that's not because you're anti social. That's because you know that the most anti social place you can be is a party, right? Because it's at the party that you're not going to be able to connect with people at that level. And like, miracles happen. And we all know that occasionally at a good party that, that occurs. So, all of this to say there's a different way to create a social bond. And I'll, I'll use one example from America where I think this happens. And it's actually Burning Man. I've never been, as anybody, a Burning Man. Is it Ryan or Andrea. No, nobody. And I, I kind of look like Burning Man in some ways is maybe the worst example because it's a very new age kind of space. You know, it's, it's all drugs and new but, um, but the interesting thing about Burning Man, I think what makes it so interesting and unique, is that the central ritual of the event is the destruction of something. The, the, the social bond in Burning Man is around the destruction of this thing that's built. Like, that connects with its, with, with its founder. The, the, supposedly, the story is this guy uh, 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 lost this woman that he loved. Um, and he couldn't get over it. And he talked about it all the time with his friends, but he bored him senseless. So they they brought him down to the beach and they killed them. They brought him down to the beach and they built they built uh something and they, they burnt it as a symbol of kind of letting something go. And they were, you know, this circle of friends burning this effigy, right? And then it grew from there to now what burning man is. But there's two things they burn at least, are and in is but there's also the temple isn't there, there's the, and then in the temple you go and you put things in, you write stuff, you know, and basically you write the difficult things, the tough things, and you put it in the temple. And then on the last day, you set fire to the temple. And again, the social bond is everybody sharing a loss together, and that sharing of the loss is it is healing. It's not that oh you mourn and then you kind of like you know, reconstruct and heal. It's like, you no, know, the mourning is the healing, right? There's no, like, one and then the other. You know, it's like seeking and finding, and it's the that biblical idea, you seek and you will find. But actually, the, the literal translation is seeking and seeking you find. There's no there's no difference. It's not like you're seeking something and then you find it. It's seeking is finding. Asking is receiving, knocking is the door the opened. the 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 share, sharing of the loss is the healing. Wake awake is an Irish ritual where you uh, traditionally stand over a dead body and you stay with the body of the dead for 24 hours. But it also has come to mean the getting together after a funeral, where you drink together, you toast the dead person together, you laugh together about stories, old stories, and you cry together. And what a wake is, is it's a connecting of a social bond around a loss, a shared loss. And the interesting thing is in Christianity, you have the central sacramental act, which is the Last Supper. And what is that? That is a group of people creating a social bond around a shared loss, the death of God. So and I think there's some like Salvation Army stuff, you don't do any sacramental stuff, that's the one thing they do. So that's kind of like the one thing you find right across the board is this, is this idea that the Last Supper is somehow central and it is a social bond based on embracing this lack. And of course the idea of the Last Supper is as you do it, there is a return. There is something there's a positivizing this the, you know, the return of God, you do this in remembrance of me, there I am among right. you. So, all of this to say that what we're trying to do here in Wake is create a social, like pop-up community, as Adam talked about, but that is not connected with what we share ideologically together and that, this, and that. But somehow the sharing are coming to terms with the the inherent nature of dying to to the ambiguity and suffering to life and that that is actually something that is inherent to life itself and also to the theological tradition itself the theological tradition doesn't make really room for that it it is that it is drawing us into that in a way that brings true healing and true joy okay we've got a couple of minutes for questions what time is there, Can anyone want to throw in something about that? We've got like five minutes before we have to stop this session. But any question or comment about this notion of the shared
1: lack? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, over. I have a question. Thank you. So, the person who projects their lack onto another person, yeah. <laughs> the need to be oh, you're saying that they. You know what I mean? Like the person who takes it, says, oh, that well. so he, You know, like the obsession. There's, there's some people
2: who, there's some people who like, um, they take that lack on, so I would you say. You want me to talk about that? Yes. No, I think I, I think I know what you mean, but I might be well off on a tangent, so I want to keep
1: keep keep right. Like, the first thing I think
2: about is there are certain uh, people who, um, they uh, they like to be martyrs. You see this with a lot of mothers, not all mothers at all, of course, but you know the mother who wants to just sacrifice to their child completely. It's, no, it's not about you, but it's almost like it's like they're suffering and suffering and suffering, but you can see they're enjoying their suffering, right? It's like, oh, you know, I'm always having to give them licks everywhere, I'm always having to cook, I'm always So there's something that like they really like, it, right? Um, uh, it's in church, it's the person who's always giving, giving, giving to the church. Um, and they're always, it's like too sacrificial, there's too much sacrifice. You an know, obsessive cat doesn't sacrifice enough. Interestingly, but I have sacrifices their sacrifice too well. much, um, And then, so that's always like If someone supports me, I, this is this doesn't happen right? but sometimes with icons, someone will come and they'll want to give loads of money to you or something. But you've got to work out whether that's coming from a place of they want to disappear entirely. You know, that they, 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 they're getting some pleasure out of like this sacrificial act. Then you can't take the money, because it's very, very Dangerous. It's, it's, it's playing into one of their symptoms. Whereas if it's an obsessive, you kind of do sometimes have to get them to be more sacrificial because they want to hold on everything. I don't think you're talking about that. Um, or, are they, or are you? Or do you want to give me more? Um, I think, um, oh my gosh, I should have it for a little bit. Sorry. Is it the person who always
1: needs the needy person? So this person, they're in a relationship with someone, but they can't be in a relationship with
0: someone unless they're needy. Right, like almost like they're addicted to, to the story of the person that's their,
1: who, they're addicted to the story of being the object of someone like. but that's their that's yeah. a fetish object, being that's the fetish object,
2: right? So they
1: want
2: to, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, this is, I mean, this, this, this maybe is a sideways approach. you saw you all have heard me say before about it. It, we, it. What you're bringing up, I think, is the fact that we are the, we're so interconnected, first of all, that, that all of these structures are, we tend to atomize things, when actually a lot of political structures and our social structures are all interconnected. So I um, probably not have time, actually, to answer this. So you back to tell us we're about to finish off. You know, I'll, I'll say this very quickly. Yes. Oh yeah, we give people plenty of time. But I mean, a, a good way of understanding how it, how we can be bound up in these weird psychic structures is that idea of two people going out, two people being married. And I, this is a true example: I have a couple of friends that are married, married ten years. The desire is out of the relationship. They're not sleeping together. Not doing any of that. They're still friends. There's no desire really in the relationship. And then uh, he falls for this other girl, so we call him Jack and Jill and Snow White, because right? that's the real names, weirdly. So, weird. so it's Jack and Jill, and Jack falls in love with Snow White, and, uh, but he can't be with Snow White because he said, I can't be with you because I'm married. I'm married, so I can't be with you, but I'd love to be with you. It would be amazing, lovely, amazing if we were together. Um, but then the, the brief affair is finally out. Um, so Jill is like, Well, move White, you need to be out of this house. And Jack's like, great, but we are now to be finally do it to the white, and Snow White's happy find Jack who is white. But that doesn't happen. right? If you're an alien from outer space, that's what you think would happen. You go, okay, well, Jack and Jill, they're not really desiring each other too much, so they're happy to break up. And Jack wants to go out to the white, so obviously he's going to go out to the white. And so, you know, they'll resolve the a little bit of pain around that everyone eventually gets what they want to some extent. But we all know that that's not what happens most of the time. Most of the time, what happens and what happens in this example, Is within a week Jack and Jill are sleeping together again and having sex like rabbits and they're going off in like some little Hollywood. Snow White is nowhere to be seen, right? Snow White is completely off the picture. You're like, what the hell? And even though Jack and Jill are still annoyed at each other, I think Jill is really annoyed at Jack for the lies and deception. Jack is annoyed at Jill because he feels like the relationship, there's no passion or desire, is over anyway. So they all hate each other consciously, but unconsciously they're like so up to each other. What is going on? Well, it's a weird structure where, for Jill, um, her objective desire, well, she, well, for Jack, let's say, Jack desires Snow White. He desires Snow White, and Jill is in the way. But actually, Jill, as an obstacle, is what makes Jack desire Snow White. The fact that she's impossible makes her desires. So he's a typical obsessive. Obsessives, generally, want what they can have. So they desire the other person's partner, right there. They're always desiring the impossible object. So as soon as the impossibilities take it away, as soon as Jill says, clear off, Jack's like, I would never want to work with Snow White. She's mental. I like, thought it would be a ridiculous thing, you know? It's like the scales drop from his eyes. He's like, what, what, what? Oh, great! And but what's happening with Jill? Well, well, Jill in this example is kind of acting more of what psychoanalysis calls an hysteric way, which is an hysteric desires what's under threat of being taken away. So they can only desire what they have when it's under threat of removal. So Snow White is what's threatening the removal of Jack, and so that causes her desire for Jack. So now Jack. Jill or there. and of course this just happens repeatedly <laughs> this is this is a, a not a good way to keep desire alive but it's one of the ways that happens we do it very well there's healthier ways of doing it but that's just an example of how that we can play these rules it's always interesting what rules that we allow ourselves to play and the question is what do we get out of the pleasure of these rules and if we're doing something that is destructive, the weird, the weird question asked is, what do I get out of it? So I'll give one example and then we'll stop, but I, I like this because here's its political question, which is which is to people, which is, why do people vote for oppressive political systems that oppress them? Or why do people go to churches that are obviously bad for them? Right? Why do people do that? And the answer used to be, the liberal answer is education. If you educate people, <laughs> they will learn and they will stop going to the stupid church. Right? So here's Prosperity Church, which is telling you, you know, you can be rich and wealthy and, you know, all be, you know, all of that money can be yours. Just keep believing, keep praying the prayer, it'll all be wonderful, right? And so you come along and you go, here's statistics, that and say it doesn't work, right? There's no statistical difference between people in your community and this church getting rich. There is no connection between this church and wealth creation. There's the stats, right? Sociologist comes along, lays it all like, she's a sociologist. There it is. Doesn't work. I think that's what sociologists do, I <laughs> um, do uh, But then, the, there, of course, we discover that it doesn't seem to have any effect at all.
1: I mean, maybe some
2: people are influenced by the stats, but a lot of people, they continue to just be part of oppressive systems. So you go, OK, what is the issue? Well, the psychoanalytic response is The failure of the church is exactly what keeps us enslaved to it, right? It's actually the fact that it doesn't work, which is its power, right? So with gambling, people think that gamblers are addicted to winning, but more often than not, they're addicted to losing. Because when you lose repeatedly, it generates a fantasy of how great the win would be. So the more you lose, the more the it win it's like, oh my goodness, that would fix everything, that would solve everything. If you kept winning and gambling, you'd get over the addiction pretty quick. It's like playing slot machines is boring. It might make some money, but there's more fun ways to make money, right? It's the, the perpetual losing generates the fantasy of what, what it would be like to win. So in the same way, you go to a prosperity church, it's continually telling you how amazing it will be to have all this money and how all of your problems will be solved and God will vanquish you your enemies. So you're getting this fantasy and the fact that you're not getting it ever just makes the fantasy all the stronger. The more you feel, the more the oppression is, the stronger the fantasy becomes and the more in state of fantasy you are. If if you did, if it did succeed, if the church did get you wealthy and did vanquish you all your enemies, then it would feel, Because then you realise, oh, the anxiety isn't because you know, my external world is problematic. The anxiety is because my internal world is problematic. You know, you think, like, if you think of an insomniac, the problem is, oh, we just have to have a very quiet room and a black enough room, and it'll all fix. You know, the insomniac is always looking for something that's disturbing their sleep. And they'll find anything. And if everything's completely silent, it'll be their own heartbeat, right? The insomniacs so like, no matter how perfect your external world, if your internal world is at fault, Matter, right? So, the very success of, if you get all the money, it feels why because you realize it doesn't hold. Having loads of money might get you a nicer shower and a nice, nicer air conditioning, but it doesn't feel the lack of your being. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, so so weirdly, um, it's actually people people give themselves say to a church that's giving this fantasy, they give it precisely because they always feel. To, to, to do the things that it tells you to. The people who do it all, I and mean, maybe some of you are those crazy people, the idiots who actually do everything, right? You go, okay, you know, well, I want to get the common elder, I have to read the whole Bible, I have to do this, I have to do that, well, I have to throw my whole record collection in the ocean, right? You do yeah. have to do it. that, way you just have to unsubscribe you know, from Spotify, which is a bit rubbish. And in your old days, you had to bring your whole music collection down to the ocean, right? You do all of that, so you do it all. Then you realize it doesn't hold. Then you become free of the fantasy. It's the very going all the way that allows you to find wherever this doesn't hold, the center doesn't hold. But if you don't do all that, you're always left with a residual fantasy that if you did, everything would be wonderful. So I don't know why that's connected with anything, but it's important. OK, we're going to take a break. Adam, Wi-Fi.